and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and the host of this award-winning podcast, which brings you a unique perspective on the pandemic by telling its story through UCL research and researchers. If you told me back in March that just before Christmas, the first people would be receiving a COVID vaccine with 90% efficacy, I wouldn't have believed you. But this week, we finally got there, with Margaret Keenan becoming the first person in the world to receive a COVID vaccine outside of a trial. And yes, of course, we know that this is only the beginning of the end and that there's a long, hard road to travel still. But it doesn't take away from the extraordinary achievement that this represents. Nor, despite the assertions of various ministers, does it do anything else but highlight the value and importance of collaboration across borders and across disciplines. We've talked about vaccines before on this podcast, but now we're returning to the topic and to that hard road ahead and how best to negotiate it. If you want to listen to the previous episodes on vaccination, or indeed any of the other fascinating subjects we've covered in the 32 episodes of the pod to date, and I certainly never saw that one coming, all of our previous episodes are available on the UCL Minds website. For this week's episode, I have only one guest to introduce, and she's the only guest we need. Professor Martina Micheletti is Professor of Bioprocess Fluid Dynamics in the Department of Biochemical Engineering and Co-Director of the Future Vaccine Manufacturing Hub, VaxHub, which works to secure the supply of essential vaccines. Welcome, Martina. And let's just start. Hi, Vivian. Thank you for uh, inviting me to, to this podcast. It's a pleasure for me to be here. And did you celebrate when that first shot of vaccine went into the arm of Margaret Keenan. It was definitely a very important day, you know, in general for you know our global society, but in particular probably for the scientific community working on on vaccine manufacturing. So it was a day of celebration, but I said there's a long hard road still to travel. Let's start, if we may, with an overview of the current vaccine situation. So currently Pfizer is being used in a mass vaccination programme here. And I think I'm right in saying that Canada also has authorization. But there are other vaccines still in development. How are they different and how are they doing? Yes, yeah, so the second one online, I would say, is uh, the Moderna one. I believe they have submitted approval, definitely in, in the US. So it seems that they are next one uh, online, still like similar to the Pfizer-BioNTech one. It's the vaccine that requires quite a, a cold temperature, so minus 70, which obviously might involve some, some logistics challenges there. And then we obviously have the Oxford AstraZeneca. Uh, the press in the UK have you know, uh, greatly covered this, uh, uh, this vaccine, and it looks like is again, close to, to approval. This vaccine is, uh, has different characteristics and requires only four degrees fridge temperature. So in the way, the logistics there is easier. I felt a bit sorry for the developers of the Oxford vaccine because it kind of got given a B minus when in fact, actually, it was a, it was a triumph. It was just how it appeared, I guess, next to the others. But it is still a very important vaccine. And this idea that there might be a different dosing regime is one that also needs to be sorted out, doesn't it? Definitely. So I, I feel sorry, of course, for, for my colleagues for having some sort of negative press there. So as you probably know, a, a pharma company has to announce 
you know, as soon as they have their uh, first analysis of the clinical trial state, they have to announce the results because obviously they have yeah, it's market sensitive, isn't it? It's, exactly. It, yes. They have an impact on, on their share prices. And, and that doesn't give uh, scientists the opportunity to publish the data. Now, Oxford has now published the data on The Lancet, which is a peer-reviewed journal. And obviously, that is very important for the scientific community to have a look at those data and then you know, realize for themselves the efficacy uh, and the strength of those, uh, of those studies. And what's exciting about the Oxford vaccine is it seems to play a role in the reduction of transmission. And that's something that we're all very keen to see, because if you stop people being very ill with COVID, that's great. But actually, if they can still infect other people because they are still shedding virus, if they get it, that's not so good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and this is something that they have, you know, demonstrated to to, to a certain extent with this uh, data. Uh, and I would also make another point that, you know, the we we do need a large number of doses in order to cover the entire population. So we do need this sort of multiple approach to, you know, different vaccines that uh, that work, because we need to be realistic about this. If we live in a global society, we'll never get rid of this infection. You know, unless the the vaccine uh, reach out to to the wider the the wider world and populations of different countries. In terms of the vaccination program, and I should come clean here and say that I was a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation for many years, actually at the time of the last pandemic. And I I know that one of the big things is that for each and every disease, there's a different roster of people who are vulnerable. So in terms of this vaccination program. Who's being vaccinated first and why? It, it really depends on, I think, the regulatory approval. And uh, obviously, different clinical trials might have addressed a uh, the, you know, certain group of population of you know, different ages, for example. You know, it was in, in the press and it is in the Lancet communication that, for example, the Oxford vaccine, AstraZeneca vaccine, has targeted a population that is up to 55 years old. And so the regulatory bodies will look at those data and then, you know, design, essentially define who can get that vaccine. And there are some logistics here too, because, for instance, because of the need for the rather extreme cold chain for the Pfizer vaccine, that puts a limit on where you can roll it out to. Yeah, absolutely. So that vaccine is manufactured, I believe, in uh, in Belgium. So of course that is, you know, sort of easiest the you know, it's easier to, to be transported to, to the UK and then and then stored. So there are logistics challenges, but it is possible in my opinion, you know, within Europe to have, you know, this, this sort of cold chain distribution. Um, where it comes really challenging is for, for this to be distributed to Asia and to uh, different African countries, for example. And if you have a vaccine that shows very good efficacy in the under 50s, but not so good efficacy in the older age group who are more at risk from COVID, is there an argument there that actually then the vaccine should be given to younger age groups in order to prevent some transmission? I mean, absolutely. This is essentially what probably is going to happen once this uh, this vaccine is going to is going to get approval. And we shouldn't also forget that um, you know lots of clean, clinical trials are still ongoing. And uh, my colleagues informed me, I think last week, they are planning clinical trials, for example, on pregnant women 
and uh, as well as on children. So more sort of, you know, category of population. You know, so we will have this data essentially in different categories, but we just need to, to wait a little bit longer. Luckily, pregnant women don't seem to be particularly at risk, whereas in with the swine flu pandemic, pregnant women were very seriously affected. So that's a that's that's a, a good thing. But the next question, of course, is logistics. Now, I spent one of the most thrilling evenings of my life. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not kidding you. <laughs> Sitting next to a man from Tesco once who told me how lemonade, which apparently is the thing that we all drink at Christmas. I don't know why, but we do. How lemonade is transported around the country at Christmas time. And what an extraordinary logistics exercise that is. Well, this is lemonade plus, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, what we what we have read in the press is is really the, the sort of logistics effort that Pfizer-BioNTech put in place in this, uh, you know, almost, I think, a thousand vials boxes with sensors inside so that the, the sort of, you know, there must be a sort of logistics center uh, at the Pfizer side as the company is going to be responsible for the vaccine to be still efficacious uh, uh, at the time of uh, at the time of distribution. So they needed to have temperature sensors to uh, monitor that. So that I would say that has been, uh, you know, quite uh, quite costly. But some of the logistics, you know, that's what drug companies are really good at. But sometimes it's the last mile where logistics fail. Tell me a bit about the last mile. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on, on the logistics there, but I think it's, it's quite a, you will need quite a, a big design exercise, in, at least in engineering terms, to make sure that, you know, once this, uh, this uh, very important box is, is open, you know, for the vials to, to actually be distributed effectively in these four or five days that, uh, that's allowed to, to happen. Where are the weak spots in our logistics chain at the moment? And I'm assuming we're, we're recording this, by the way, before there's been any decision about deal or no deal. But what are the and, and that, of course, might delay lots of things. But what are the weak points in the supply chain for vaccines? Well, in, in, in general, um, you know, in the vaccine manufacturing process, there's lots of, uh, you know, different types of supplies feeding from, you know, the sort of cell engineering work down to the actual manufacturing process, uh, you know, down to, to sort of filling and preparing, preparing the vials down to the logistics of the actual, of the actual distribution. So it is, is indeed, uh, you know, a very, very, uh, very complex chain. And I think this is probably one of the things that in the UK we have learned to, uh, you know, the, the, the supply chain chain and especially the modeling of that is uh, you know needs to be really uh, looked at especially in the case of a pandemic uh, where we want to work at a much much uh, faster rate it is just extraordinary really the rate that this has developed has the speed surprised you i mean you're in vaccines has it surprised this you that it's been quite so quick well, maybe, uh, yeah, so yes and no. It is, you know, in comparison to, you know, the years which are usually required to to get a vaccine from uh, from discovery, let's say, to being a product commercially available. You know, that has been quite an extraordinary speed that, you know, different companies and universities have achieved in this instance. I would say that there has been large investments 
uh, obviously, because, you know, there was a pandemic where the UK government, you know, for example, you know, and different other governments in Europe and in the US, they were sort of losing. So there's a very big impact on the economy. Um, and so there was lots of uh, uh, lots of cash from the UK, but also from, from the US into the, for example, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which obviously, uh, in a way, supported uh, the speed at which this, uh, uh, this has happened. I should also say that specifically for the for the Oxford vaccine within our vaccine manufacturing hub we were already working on you know essentially ensuring the supply of essential vaccines in the case of an epidemic threat so we were already working on technologies that could in a way speed up process development and manufacturing of those vaccines and i think this has also sort of provided the basis for the work that then you know oxford took has provided in a way they the basis for for their work and why the the vaccine was developed so quickly. Do you think, in some ways, that this ushers in a golden age of vaccines? Because you know, there's been a lot of investment, and we're getting these RNA vaccines which we've not seen before, and which are relatively easy to manufacture. Do you see those being used much more widely in the future, building on what we hope is the great success of this COVID vaccine? So you you are correct there, Vivian. So there is no commercially available product which has been licensed using that technology. But it is remarkable how that technology could be, in a way, developed and manufactured uh, you know, quite quickly for, for this pandemic. I would say that the the minus 80, the stability, the stability of those vaccines is something that definitely we want to do more research on in the future. But it, it definitely, this is going to be one of uh, the technologies that in the future to, to make at least a specific type of vaccine. One of the interesting things, I think, is we all rant on about pharmaceutical companies and you know how bad and evil they are. But actually, this has shown that when there is a global crisis, the fact that they've got all those research laboratories, you know, ready and waiting to go, and that they're prepared to take these big risks. After all, they've been pre-manufacturing, haven't they? They've been producing this stuff in advance. And actually, if the trials had gone wrong, they would have had to throw the whole lot away and lost absolute fortunes. So we do need the pharmaceutical companies to be making profit, much though we might hate it, because we need them in this kind of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. As you as you said, they have been manufacturing early on and at risk, and that's not something that that happens uh, that happens in in sort of a normal, you know, usual conditions for manufacturing of a new product. So let's now think globally, because of course, until everyone's safe, none of us are safe. What issues, and we've mentioned the cold chain, but what other issues do we need to overcome to ensure vaccine can reach everyone, even in communities that are quite hard to access? Yeah, so uh, I would say that we can, uh, what, what has happened before in the sort of vaccine manufacturing space, uh, uh, you know, Western Western countries and uh, large biopharma, you know, made those, uh, those vaccines and then distributed to low and middle income countries. But there is, uh, you know, maybe there is something different that we can do and I'd like to suggest here. So within Vaxab, we work with the low and middle income countries manufacturers so that they can adopt some of their technologies, maybe make some efforts towards you know, innovating their processes so that they be- become essentially better producers of the vaccines for their own people. 
And I think that in, you know, we work with companies, for example, in Indonesia, in uh, Vietnam, in India, and their only interest is to really make the vaccines for their own people when they need it. And I think that that could be an approach that could ensure better access to vaccines for uh, you know the larger population. And it's interesting because organisations like Gavi, which sort of brings together people to develop new vaccines for low and middle income countries, they've always said that there should be, I don't know, factories somewhere that should be essentially dark factories until you need them. Because we tend to all scrabble about at the last minute, but you do need this capacity, don't you, to manufacture. And you've mentioned places in Indonesia, but actually it's the, it's also true of the UK because we only used to have one vaccine manufacturing centre, which I think I'm right in saying was up in Liverpool. Now we have a couple more. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, probably it's the capacity that, uh, that we need. But also, you know, imagine the, all the scientists and uh, working in, in those factories, to, who's training them? How can they be knowledgeable about, you know, new technologies that are that are appearing, etc., in order to, you know, uh, in, in a way be current on process development and new ways of manufacturing so that they can make the vaccines in and the number of sufficient, the sufficient number of doses in the case of, of an epidemic, for example, so in a very, very quickly and uh, rapidly. It's true regarding the, the UK, my hub is a sort of 7 million investments uh, for in well started in 2018 and it is an equivalent one of a 10 million investment from you know led by Peel. so that is a, you know in a way a testimony of the uh, investment made in fundamental vaccine vaccine research but it is true that in terms of the you know the actually manufacturing centers uh, until a few years ago they were probably lacking now the government has indeed invested in new centres. So you might have heard about Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Centre, VIMIC, which is going to be close to close to Oxford. It was uh, not planned during the pandemic. It was, you know, there were already plans in uh, in place, but uh, the pandemic has meant that their plans for opening are going to be, you know, anticipated. And I mean, I was told that in uh, summer next year. We will have the first uh, opening of the process development labs in the centre. Yes, that is if its fill and finish machine is not delayed on the high seas because of Brexit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, just threw that out. I just threw that out there. And, and the other thing that we should say is that we all assume that vaccines can be manufactured a bit like you know widgets in a factory that you put your you put your metal in or whatever it is and then you get screws out the other end, but actually. Vaccine manufacture is a biological process, and sometimes it can go wrong for reasons that are not actually that clear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the, the, the new technologies, for example, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines relies on infecting uh, mammalian cells. So when we talk about uh, biological organisms used as a sort of host expression systems, uh, this is where there is a lot of inherent variability and, uh, and lots of things, as you say, could, could go wrong. You need to make sure that you remove the impurities, any process-related or product-related impurities, and you don't know what those are. So, you know, this is Definitely, uh, I hope that the that the funding for fundamental research is, is going to carry on to look at these issues and be better prepared in the future. I'm ashamed to know I don't know the answer to this, but is there a specific UCL course that trains people 
in the manufacturer of vaccines? Can I do an MSc in vaccine manufacturer? So I don't think there is an MSc. <laughs> but, well, uh... I did... <laughs> David Price, if you're listening, I think we need one of these. <laughs> So there are different efforts, though. So there, 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 is, there are a number of, of courses on uh, different aspects of vaccine manufacturing, not in a package of you know, an MSc degree, but, you know, so for example, within the VAXAB, we, one of our aim was to support uh, low and middle income countries, manufacturers, employees to actually come to those courses. So we sponsored, we sponsored them. Um, and, you know, there is a variety of courses provided by the University of Oxford and probably other institutions in the UK. And in your there are no well. other institutions in the UK. <laughs> on, this, on this particular <laughs> on uh, this podcast, <laughs> there are no other institutions. <laughs> but yeah. I, I was um, I was wondering because actually we've we used to say with flu vaccines you would have to have one egg to prepare one vaccine. But the problem with eggs is that they come from chickens, obviously, and yeah. chickens are prey to bird flu, and we've got an outbreak of bird flu at the moment and in the flocks around the place. So, you know, you can see that actually that approach really was very worrying place uh, to put, if I can put it this way, all our eggs. And actually these new vaccines with so many different ways of production really do give us a much better and more assured range of products for the future that are less risky and I don't mean risky in terms of health I mean risky in terms of manufacture absolutely so you know in, in some 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 of them are cheaper to make than other we have not talked about cost but cost of making of manufacturing is definitely a, an important factor here and yeah and there are ways in which we can further further reduce the cost uh, as well and yeah, I totally agree. So the multiple approaches and the novel approaches that has been investigated due to you know the, the challenges of the pandemic uh, has been incredibly beneficial for for us for for our vaccine production in the future, but especially for low and middle income countries where commonly you know which sorry yeah, are more are more definitely more subject to the risk of an epidemic. So one final question: often in these programs, I give people my magic wand and. And I am passing it to you, Martina, because what would be the one thing that you could wave your magic wand you think would most help the vaccine rollout and programme? Uh, in a way, a difficult one. But I mean, I would, I would really wish that we have enough doses to uh, vaccinate the global population approximately at the same time. So that, that would be well, I, I think that's a very good use of my my magic wand. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges and edited by the very splendid Carrie Bradley. I was joined today by Professor Martina Micheletti. If you'd like to hear any more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Now, this is our last episode until after Christmas, and I record it pretty sure that I now have COVID, a great Christmas gift from my sister. Thanks, sis. Although I assure you, I'm doing fine. 
And all I can say to the fabulous UCL community out there is we know you've been working harder than perhaps ever in your lives over the last nine months. But it's okay to stop completely over Christmas, to relax, to recharge your batteries, ready to come back for the fight that still remains. So however few of you there are around your table this Christmas, have a good one and raise your glasses to a better year ahead. Bye for now. See you all in the new year.